Hello, and welcome, beautiful history nerds. Glad you could join me. I'm your host and historian, Ali A. Alomi. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, and also to use the hashtag HeadOnHistory so that you can follow along, post your questions, make character assassinations, all sorts of other lovely things. So let's get started. For many of the faithful, Islam begins with the prophethood of Muhammad. But our story actually begins centuries earlier. Now, you may be wondering why. Well, I'll tell you, little Timmy. Context matters. Religions don't just appear out of nowhere. They're shaped by historical circumstances. Um, They're given form by the experiences of their leaders. We historians in particular, we study change over time. We ask in what way things change and in what ways do they replicate and continue the past. Together, on this podcast, for its first and second season, we are going to ask that about Islam. We're going to ask how it broke away from ancient Arabia, and we're going to ask in what ways did it continue the practices, values, and beliefs of what came before it. So in order to do that, we need to start before Muhammad. Our journey begins with two great kingdoms and a terrible war. Far, far to the south of Arabia, in what is today probably Yemen, probably leagues away from Mecca, which was the birthplace of Muhammad, there lay a kingdom, a kingdom known as Himyar. Himyar had a warrior king, a man named Tubwa Abu Kariba Assad, who in the 4th, maybe 5th century, we're not quite sure, led his powerful armies in a great war of expansion. Now, His hordes swept through Arabia, conquering one town after the other, and it seemed like for a while nothing could truly stop him. Then suddenly he approached Yathrib, a city that would later on be called Medina, and he fell ill. He lay on his deathbed. No one knew what was wrong with him when two Jewish wise men approached him. Learned in the ways of medicine, they plied their trade and healed the warrior king. He was so impressed by their knowledge and the discipline of their faith that Tuba Kabu Ariba Assad converted to Judaism. His kingdom followed suit. This was the first Jewish kingdom in all of Arabia, and that's significant. While there were lots of Jewish tribes and there were cities that had Jews, this was the first true Jewish kingdom in Arabia. We don't know why he truly converted. We're told the story of the wise men who were able to heal him. But we do know that a Jewish kingdom existed. We don't know the reasons of conversion, but we know that it was a particular brand of Judaism combined with the warrior mentality of its king that made this kingdom more aggressive than any of the others. Now, across the sea, across the Red Sea to be specific, on the coast of Africa was the ancient empire of Aksum, covering what is today Ethiopia and Eritrea and even parts of southern Egypt. It also included one of my favorite African countries, Djibouti. This ancient kingdom converted to Christianity in the roughly 4th century under King Ezana. Now, you're probably wondering what these two kingdoms have to do with one another. A Jewish kingdom in Arabia and a Christian kingdom in Africa. I mean, who gives an F? But there is one really important commonality that these two kingdoms shared. They were actually 
allies of much bigger empires who happened to be at war with one another. So the Christian Axum was allied to Byzantium, whereas Himyar was allied to the Persian Sasanian Empire. There was also another Persian client state in Arabia called the Lachamids, who were the natural allies of Himyar. The Sasanians of Persia practiced Zoroastrian, a specific brand of Zoroastrianism known as Mazdakism. Zoroastrianism is an ancient religion, probably the earliest monotheistic religion and the inspiration for what eventually becomes Judaism. It's a dualist religion that worshipped the god of light, known as Ahura Mazda, uh, while rejecting the god of evil, Ahraman. It was found by the prophet Zoroaster in Balkh, in what is today the border of modern-day Afghanistan. The Byzantine Empire, on the other hand, converted to Christianity centuries earlier under Theodosius, one of its emperors. Now, the conflict between these two empires, between Byzantium and Sasanian Persia, can be mistaken for a religious conflict as Zoroastrians versus Christians, but that's not entirely accurate. History is way more complicated than that. To really understand why these two had been fighting and at war for so long with one another, you have to understand what was going on with trade. The borderland between these two countries included places like Armenia and the Jerusalem, which eventually becomes known as the Holy Land. And these two borderlands and this region switches hands between Sasanian Persia and Byzantium more often and more regularly than President Trump tweets. Now, future generations are probably not going to understand that reference in any way, shape, or form, and they're going to be like, what is this bald mofo actually talking about? But for those of you living through 2017, I feel your pain. The issue here is that any type of good that Constantinople wanted, whether it was porcelain or silk, had to make its way through Sasanian territories, and then through those borderlands that were volatile, either in Byzantium hands or in Sasanian hands. And so those goods faced heavy taxes that drew the prices very high up. This was costly for Constantinople. Something that they would want like silk would probably cost three times what it would cost the Sasanians. Aksum, this African Christian country, provided an alternative trade route. Goods could flow around the Arabian Peninsula on a ship or through smaller trade routes that intersected in Mecca. Because of this, this also made Mecca an important trading city. It was a minor one, but goods did flow through it. Now, obviously, this was not suitable for the Sasanians. The Sasanians didn't want trade to go around them. They relied on those taxes. So, in the early 500 CE, the Himyar ruler, King Duhunawas, commenced with a violent pogrom of slaughtering Christians in southern Arabia. This was a way of making the trade routes in the region unmanageable, forcing things to go back to their original trade routes. The persecution of the Christians provoked King Caleb of Aksum, who, with the help of the Byzantium Emperor Justin, mobilized his forces. He was determined to come to the rescue of his fellow co-religionists. He gathered his armada of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers in the port of Adjudus and marched on Hemyar.
The forces met in the arid deserts of Arabia, fighting under the scorching heat. But in the end, the forces of King Duhu Nawaz of Emya were no match. The Jewish kingdom came to an end. By roughly 523, Aksum had claimed the once mighty kingdom for itself and installed a Christian viceroy, Sumwafa Ashawa. Now, this victory was decisive. This was it. The Jewish kingdom had come to an end. But as we come to realize in history, it was hardly conclusive, which is really just kind of a fancy of way of saying that there's more to this story than we might think. By 525, only a couple years later, the general Abraha, who had led the battle against the Jewish kingdom, eventually overthrew his own viceroy and claimed the kingdom for himself. He was a Christian and devout, and he continued the Christian hegemony, but he did the unthinkable. He cut off tribute to Aksum. He said, we are no longer going to pay tribute to the larger kingdom of Aksum. We are going to be our own, and we're going to regulate our own money. Now, this was a big deal. In the ancient world, when an empire conquered a land or a city, that land or city would have to pay tribute in order to gain protection, to continue their way of life, and to keep for, from being uh, wiped out. Here we are, this kingdom of Himyar, newly a Christian empire, saying, F all of that, we're not going to pay those taxes. It was a huge break with the past. In response, King Caleb sends not one, but two separate invasion forces to put down this jumped-up general. But it was all for naught, because despite his overwhelming forces, Aksum is defeated, and Himyal continues to be its own separate Christian kingdom. Now, one would think that this is the end of the Red Sea Wars, and certainly it is the end of the battle between Himyar and Aksum, but the war is far from over. Roughly around 568 or 570, which most historians mark as the birth of Muhammad, Abraha, the Christian ruler of Emyar, invades Mecca. No one knows why we're not quite told what happened or what the real reasons are. But Ibn Ashaq, one of the early historians, mentions that there was a feud between the Quraysh of Mecca and Himyar. Now, the Quraysh are an elite merchant aristocratic tribe that rules Mecca. They rely predominantly on trade brought about through pilgrimage. There is this giant black cube in the middle of Mecca known as Kaaba that eventually Muslims take as their own sacred shrine. There's all sorts of stories about the uh, Kaaba. Apparently, it was built by Abraham. It was where Adam may have possibly uh, arrived on earth. All sorts of stories are told. Christian Arabs and Jewish Arabs take it as sacred as well, while for pagan Arabs, it was a place of pilgrimage. You would bring your idols and place them in the Kaaba. The Quraysh, who were the key holders of the Kaaba, could then draw people in into their market town, bringing with them goods. They relied on the Kaaba for trade. And so this feud between Himyar and the Quraysh threatens that trade. The story, according to Ibn Ashaq, is that one of the Quraysh was killed during a dinner with the king of Himyar. This sounds like something straight out of Game of Thrones. We're talking Red Wedding style. Dude sits down to have some dates or whatever the F that he was trying to eat, and he gets killed. This is a big no-no in Arabian culture where... 
This man was a guest. He was meant to be protected, and yet he was killed. So in retaliation, one of the members of Quraysh supposedly desecrated a church. Now, no one knows what desecrated really means. Uh, some speculate that he possibly defecated in that church. No one knows. But the point is, there is some bad blood. We're talking Taylor Swift-style bad blood. Aha, you didn't think I knew about that Taylor Swift shit. I did. I actually learned it from my students, so don't judge me. Abraha, in retaliation, invades Mecca. His purpose? He is going to get revenge for the desecration of the church by destroying the Kaaba, the sacred cube that was the source of the Quraysh's wealth and power. He leads his armies upon this mighty elephant named Mahmud. This elephant becomes legendary, and so the year of the invasion, anywhere from 568 to 570, ends up becoming called the year of the elephant. Now again, we're not sure why the invasion fails, but it does. Abraha turns back and he dies later. Now in the Quran, there is a reference to this event in Surah Fil, mentioning that God sent birds to pelt the invaders with stone. We're not sure what happened, but historians speculate that smallpox probably decimated the armies of Himyar. But the fact that the Quran mentions it and talks about this kind of divine intervention is important. It sets the stage for the prophetic career of Muhammad. Muhammad's birth wasn't just a normal event. It was historic. It happened in the year of the elephant, the year God intervened. And so we see even at the even later on that this moment in history is reimagined through the sacred lens of Islam. Why does this matter? Who gives a crap that Islam reimagines this particular story? Well, Karen Armstrong quite famously put that Islam experiences divinity through history. And she's accurate. By which she meant that when history is moving forward, it is seen as an expression of God's divine will. And when history stalls and man falls into ignorance and chaos and corruption, then man has pulled away from God. So understanding this history and how Islam itself interprets this history is important for knowing the religion. Now, to go back to the kingdom of Himyar, Himyar eventually falls. Abraha dies, we don't know from what, probably smallpox, but the pro-Persian forces that have always remained there from the time of the Jewish kingdom on, they send a message through one of their other client states, the Lachamids, to the Sasanian emperor Khusro, who was a powerful Zoroastrian ruler. In 575, only a few years after the failed invasion, Sasanian forces under Wahriz and the famed Saif ibn Dihi Yazan conquered Himyar and re-established it as their own client state. Thus, the Red Sea Wars come to an end. The skirmishes would continue, though, because now there was once more a Persian client state in southern Arabia. Christians remained in Arabia, Jews remained in Arabia, and these two forces, these two imperial clients, continued to battle it out in some great historic rock'em sock'em robot style shit. You had the robots as Himyar and Aksum, Jews and Christians, and you had the people moving the robots as the Sasanians and the Byzantines. Now, let's take a quick break and do a rapid-fire round so that we can just 
take a break from all of the stories. Who the hell are all these strange names? This seems complicated. Why should you even know or care? What's with the Trump reference? Why does any of this matter? Why are the Jews and Christians beefing? So, who the hell are all these strange names? Listen, Broham Disengees, by ham, I mean halal ham. The history of the Middle East is unfamiliar to a lot of people, right? You didn't grow up learning this history. You're often not taught this history in class, right? You know, we were taught George Washington, right? The fanciest name we have is Rousseau. So you're not familiar with names like Tuba Abu Kariba Assad, and that can get complicated. But bear with it. Together, we're going to get through this, and you'll start to become more and more familiar to this. This all seems really complicated. What should you know? Look, I know that it can be difficult to understand this entire story, but here's what you should know. That Arabia, at the time of Muhammad's birth, was caught between two dueling empires, a conflict of religions, and suffused with trade. Along with that trade came new ideas, religions, and thoughts. This made the land simultaneously hostile as well as rich with travelers, religions, beliefs, and customs. That's the context, that's the background from which Islam grows. Hostility on one hand, new religions and ideas on the other. What's with the Trump reference? It's 2017, like I said before. Future historians will call this a dark age. And I'm going to make repeated Trump references because we're in this together, my friends. Hashtag resist. Why does any of this matter? Well, the past is prologue and context does matter. The Red Sea War set the stage for Islam. It helps us understand in what ways Islam breaks with the past and in which ways Islam continues the traditions of the past. If you understand the Red Sea Wars, you'll start to understand some elements of Islamic customs, beliefs, and some of the things that develop out of the history of Islam. Why are the Jews and Christians beefing? Well, this is actually part of a kind of broader history of the late antique Mediterranean that I'll probably go into in season three or four when we talk about the history of Christianity or the history of Judaism. But suffice it to say that the Judeo-Christian tradition wasn't separated during the first century CE, that over a process of several hundred years after the destruction of the temple, Christianity began to associate itself with Rome and was Romanized, and Judaism broke away from it, and the two began to define their religion as oppositional to one another. This developed both orthodoxy and heresy, and so as a result, there is a tension going on between Jews and Christians, and that tension is important to understand. Islam. All right, now, rapid-fire round done, let's get back to Arabia. Being caught between the Byzantine Empire and the Sasanian Empire had several consequences for the land. So first, it divided up the people and the tribes along different alliances. The old order before the coming of Islam meant that if you were a tribe that wanted to succeed and thrive, you either aligned yourself with the Sasanian Empire or with the Byzantine Empire. These alliances caused blood feuds between tribes, conflict, raiding one another's caravans, all sorts of fighting. These two great empires, the Sasanian and the Byzantine, used Arabia as their battlefield. And the Red Sea Wars were just the most recent example of that global rock'em sock'em robots battle I was discussing earlier. The second thing that we see is that the influx of trade brought travelers 
to Arabia. Now, Arabia wasn't a major trading port. That was actually in Syria and the Levant. But there were people who traveled through Mecca. And with them came new ideas, new religions, stories, tales. People converted to Zoroastrianism. People became Jewish. People converted to Christianity. All these religions existed simultaneously. And so the average Arabian who would be interested in religion would be exposed to all sorts of ideas. Arabia, before the coming of Islam, was pretty complicated. So we're going to talk a little bit about what life was actually like. We talked about the history on top, the history of the empires, but let's talk about the every ordinary person. Now, the historical record on this is a little bit iffy. It's hard to understand what's going on, and much of what we have comes from a later period. Historians writing about the time period hundreds of years later. But what little we know comes from inscriptions, from places like the throne of Adulis, from uh, southern Arabia, from coins. What we know is that there were two types of people. There were sedentary and those that were Bedouins. The sedentary people lived in cities where the trade was happening, while Bedouins lived a somewhat nomadic lifestyle out in the desert. Arabia had mighty kingdoms like Haimyar, the Lachamids up in the uh, northeast, even the Sabians down in the south. All of these empires and kingdoms eventually fall away, and we don't know a lot about them. But for example, Muhammad al-Alusi tells us a little bit about the Sabians, and I think this is important to understand in regards to Islam. The Sabians practiced the Hajj, the Hajj which we now characteristically assume to be a Muslim tradition, was practiced before the coming of Islam by the Sabians. And part of their Hajj was that they would make this pilgrimage to Mecca, they would run between two mountains, they would take a stone and stone a pillar, they would wash themselves after sex, all of these things start to become important later on as they were adopted in Islam. That's really all we know about the Sabians, but clearly they had a huge influence on Islam. In addition to Jews and Christians who allied themselves with the Sasanians and the Byzantines, there was another group of monotheists. These were known as the Hanifs. The Hanifs claimed to follow the religion of Abraham. They rejected both Christianity and Judaism as well as the paganism of uh, Arabia. And instead, they were strict monotheists. They would fast during the month of Ramadan. They would go and retreat into the mountains where they would carry out their prayers. And they claimed to be descendants of Abraham through his son Ishmael. This mythology of them as descendants of Ishmael becomes big for the Arabs. The Arabs begin to see themselves as the Ishmaelites in the same way that uh, the Jews see themselves as the descendants of Isaac. And so there is a sort of cousin relationship between Arabs and Jews, with the Hanifs claiming to follow a pure form of monotheism. If the Sabians influenced some elements of Islam, we could probably argue that the Hanifs did the same thing. In fact, most historians, myself included, would argue that before Muhammad started his own religion, he likely participated in the traditions of the Hanifs, and that Islam becomes an amalgamation of the practices of the Hanifs, the Sabians, and some common uh, customs of the Jews and Christians in Arabia. Speaking of Christianity, we should take a quick note that Christianity in Arabia was what's known as Nestorianism. This is a particular branch of Christianity that was popular in the East. 
it was argued that the divine nature of Jesus and the human nature of Jesus was distinct. This Christology was considered a heresy by most other Christians. That's going to be very important for when we talk about Muhammad and his relationship to Christianity. So bear that in mind for now that that for Christianity in Arabia, Nestorianism and Arianism was the predominant ideology. Now, alongside these various monotheists, there was the Arab polytheists. Little is known of this kind of ancient religion, other than that it was very bleak. They had no concept of an afterlife. For the Arabs, life was tough. It sucked, man, you know? You would trade. You would hope that your caravan didn't get raided. You didn't want to die a horrible death. But when you did die, you hoped that that would be the end of it. No afterlife, none of that foofy paradise stuff, just that's the end. They had multiple gods, and every tribe kind of had their own deity. We had Hubal, who was a god of divination. He was the most popular in Kaaba. Uh, historian Ibn al-Qalbi uh, describes the idol of Hubal, and he said as it was roughly man-shaped and fashioned out of red agate. The priests of Hubal would seek out his wisdom by taking arrows and throwing them into the sand, and then trying to read the fortunes of people off the marks that were made. Alongside Hubal, there was Alat who was an Arab fertility goddess similar to uh, Asherah in the Canaanite religion, Al-Uzzah, the goddess of love, very similar to Aphrodite, and Manat, the goddess of fate. These were the more popular gods and goddesses. We don't know a lot about ancient Arab religion, but we do know that these deities were often shaped out of natural materials into idols, that they were given sacrifices, usually animal and blood, as well as burnt offerings and flames, that the gods' will would be read through divination, through some form of fortune-telling or prediction, that amongst the kind of priests, there was another, two other religious classes. There were those that were known as poets. Poets would travel the lands and they would sing songs of great heroes, of the escapades of the gods, and of a glorious past. The poets were the kind of history keepers of ancient Arabia. And then there were the Kahans. The Kahans were a mix of priestess and poet. They would go out into the desert and seek the spirits known as jinn. The jinn are a sort of desert entity that existed in Arabia and also make their way into Islam. And the Kahan would try to get possessed by the jinn. They would make an alliance with some fire spirit. And then the jinn would enter into their body and they would fall into a frenzy, tearing out their hair and gnashing their teeth until suddenly prophecy would come out of their mouth in rhyming verses and that these verses would then predict the future. We know that amongst that Arab society was organized as patrilineal, that your lineage was followed through your father. If you were the son of someone, you would call yourself Ibn so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. This would mark which family you were part of, which clan you participated in. There were bigger, larger clans, and within those clans, smaller tribes. So Muhammad is from the Quraysh, and he is from the Banu Hashim, a very specific branch of the Quraysh. 
The role of women was very difficult in the Arab world. They were fundamentally treated like property. They had no divorce rights. Now, some historians have argued that maybe they had some divorce rights, but there really isn't any real record of this. What we do know is that in pre-Arabia, women had a really tough time. They were married away like property, and there was a variety of different ways women could get married. One, through agreement. That meant that two men would agree upon something. So a man would approach a man and ask for his daughter's hand they would sign a contract and through that agreement he would get the daughter they could capture if you were taking a raid on a caravan you could kidnap a woman and that woman would then have to be your wife or your slave you could also buy a slave and make them your personal partner or your wife, but they would still be of a lower status than you. You could inherit women. If your father died, you would inherit all of his women, but you couldn't inherit your mother, obviously. And then there was temporary unions in which there would be some form of uh, sunset clause. What this tells us fundamentally is that men and patriarchy was the dominant form of social arrangement and organization in pre-Islamic Arabia. Women were mostly property, but there were some exception to it. Polygamy was widely practiced. It was predominantly men with multiple wives, though there are some references that the Bedouins may have had women with multiple husbands. We have not been able to confirm this yet, and most historians dispute it simply because lineage was so important and lineage passed down through the male, so it would be difficult if a woman had multiple husbands to determine who was the father of the son. There's also reference, especially in the Islamic historical sources, of infanticide, that female babies in particular would be buried alive in the desert because female babies didn't bring any honor to the tribe. We don't know how widespread it was, but we do know that it certainly took place. Now, there was also the practice of veiling. Veiling is controversial today, right? We got the burkini shit going over in France, right? To wear the burkini, to not wear the burkini. But veiling in pre-modern or pre-Islamic Arabia was actually different than what we think it to be. It was not men forcing women to wear veils, but veils were a sign of status. Upper-class women would wear veils to signify that they were different from ordinary women. For example, there were laws against slaves wearing the veil. This tells us that veiling was very contrary to how we think of it today and was actually tied to social status. Now, there are some exceptions to this dire strait of women in this time period. We know that Muhammad's wife Khadija was a businesswoman before he married her, and that she was a widow. We also know that Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan, one of the major chiefs of the Quraysh, rode alongside him in battle and consulted the tribes on what they should do. So elite women could break the mold, and they were uh, exceptions, but they were certainly not the norm. Slavery was also very common. Men and women could be sold into slavery either because they were captured as uh, prisoners or because they had some debt to pay. So you could sell yourself into slavery in order to pay debt. It was chattel slavery in which people were treated like property. 
In the ancient Arabian world, eloquence was valued. People who could speak well and recite poetry were considered to have an almost magical and mystical connection to God. This is important to understand because the Quran becomes a big part of why people convert to Islam in the Arabian world, because it's the mystical and poetic quality of the revelation. It's into this world that Muhammad is born, a world of conflict and clashing faiths, of trade and skillful merchants, of kahins who would be possessed by jinn and women married into harems, of slaves and free men, of complex religions and complicated alliances that tore Arabia apart. Muhammad's mission could be argued to be seen as a third way. Indeed, historians like Garth Fowden argue that that is the case. That in this particular time period, which Muslims later relegate as Jahaliya, meaning the age of ignorance, Islam entered as an opportunity to break away from the old order. That it was a rejection of the need to ally yourself with either Sasanian Persia or Byzantium Rome, that instead you could find a new alliance, a new tribal formation, not relegated and controlled by its connection to empire, but bound together by faith. We're going to see in future episodes how Muslims deal with pre-Islamic Arabia. It is important to understand this time period because we see how it shapes Islam and how Islam shapes it. Our understanding of this time period comes from later Muslims and that tells us a lot about how Muslims deal with their own past, pre-Islamic Arabia. It's important to understand how Islam was shaped by the climate of that Arabia and how in turn how it shaped the climate itself through continuing some practices and introducing new ones. All right, my friends, I'm going to stop there for now. Hopefully I haven't bored you too much and scared you away from the first episode. But I wanted to end with some book recommendations. And I'm going to do this every episode, give you some books from further reading if you're interested. I really recommend Garth Fowden's Before and After Muhammad. He makes a really interesting case in his book where he argues that Islam was not a break from the late antique world of Rome, but rather should be seen in the broader context of monotheism emerging in late antiquity. He argues, unlike other historians, that late antiquity doesn't end with the coming of Muhammad, but rather the beginning formations of Islam can only be understood if put into the context of things like the partitioning of Judaism and Christianity. I highly recommend G.W.'s Bowersock's The Throne of Adjudus, Red Sea Wars on the Eve of Islam. This is a great book for understanding the war we talked about, the between Himyar and Aksum. I also recommend his Empires in Collision in Late Antiquity. Bowersock is really the kind of foremost expert when it comes to ancient Arabia. I'm going to give a shout out to Turaj Dari's Sasanian Persia, Rise and Fall of an Empire. He's actually my advisor at UCI and a brilliant historian of Sasanian Persia. You need to get this book if you want to understand what was going on in the Persian world. I recommend Robert Hoyland's Arabia and the Arabs from the Bronze Age to the Coming of Islam. It's probably one of the best books on pre-modern uh, or pre-Islamic Arabia. And finally, I would recommend the classic, Peter Brown's The World of Late Antiquity. It's a bit dated now. It was actually written in 1971, but it still remains popular, especially if you read it alongside Bowersock and Fowden. 
Thank you all for joining me on this short introduction. Next time, I'm going to discuss Muhammad and the believers and the rise of Islam itself. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I and use the hashtag HeadOnHistory to tweet or Facebook or Instagram your thoughts, questions, character assassinations, or things that you're just interested in me talking about. And they will definitely make their way onto the podcast. I'm probably going to start a segment where I will read those those hashtags off, but in my velvety, sultry voice, and you don't want to miss that out. If there's something you'd like to hear more of or something specific about the history of Islam, let me know. Season 1 is going to be the introduction, but I hope to expand the podcast in Season 2, and your input is welcome. Anyways, thanks for tuning in, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.